You're listening to PetLifeRadio.com. The Carolina Tiger Rescue, formerly known as the Carnivore Preservation Trust, is a 501c3 nonprofit wildlife sanctuary whose mission is saving and protecting wild cats in captivity and in the wild. The organization states its vision simply and succinctly. The Carolina Tiger Rescue is working toward the day when wild cats are not owned by individuals as pets, wild cats are not used for entertainment purposes, no trade exists for wild cats or their parts, and all wild cats prosper in sustainable native habitats. To achieve that mission, Carolina Tiger Rescue rescues wild cats, provides lifelong sanctuary for wild cats, educates the public about the plight of wild cats in captivity and in the wild, conducts non-invasive research to further understand and aid wild cats, and advocates for action to maintain wild cats in sustainable native habitats, or when that is not a viable option, for the respectful, humane treatment of them in captivity. I'm Donna Haleson, host of On the Road with Mac and Molly, and with us today is Catherine Burtock, Curator of Animals at the Carolina Tiger Rescue. She'll join us after the break to chat about all things tiger, discussing everything from how the great cats communicate to how they're faring in the wild. We'll hear about the exotic pet trade and what kinds of laws are and are not on the books in the United States regarding that trade. We'll hear stories of how some of the animals came to live at the sanctuary and we'll consider what is being done and what can be done to preserve the wildcats and their habitats. All that and more after these commercial messages. Sit. Stay. We'll be right back after a short pause. Your dog digs a hole under your fence, and the next thing you know... Protect your pets with Dig Defense, the amazing new product that keeps your pets in the yard. Dig Defense is safe, fast, and easy. Each unit is made from 4-gauge galvanized American steel and can be used for repairing digouts, filling gaps, or to hold fences down so pets can't get under them. Dig Defense provides peace of mind that your pets are contained humanely and safely. Visit digdefense.com today. D-I-G-D-E-F-E-N-C-E.com. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. You're listening to On the Road with Mac and Molly on the Pet Life Radio Network. I'm your host, Donna Haleson, and joining us now from Pittsburgh, North Carolina, is Catherine Burtock. Curator of Animals at the Carolina Tiger Rescue. Welcome, Catherine, and thank you so much for being with us today. Absolutely. Happy to do so. Well, let's begin our chat with some history. When and by whom and for what purpose was your organization founded? So Carolina Tiger Rescue has been here for many years. Dr. Michael Blyman, who is a geneticist at UNC of North Carolina, he was founded this place basically to start a breeding program for smaller cats that were not being well protected in their native habitats. 
So he started with caracals, ocelots, servals. He added in bentrongs and kinkajous, which most people probably don't know what any of those animals are, and kind of started in that realm. So he began the, the process by building this area in the early 70s. By the early 80s, he actually founded it as Carnivore Preservation Trust. And kind of during that time, as he was doing this breeding of these small cats, people would come to him and say, oh, we also have this tiger that needs a home. Uh, and so very slowly, he started introducing the bigger cats as well. Uh, and after some time, we had uh, tigers and lions and bears, caracals, servals, bobcats, cougars, lions, you name it. Uh, he was taking care of it at that time. Can you tell us a little bit about your location and the design of the facility? How many acres are you sitting and in what kind of a setting? So we are in rural Chatham County, just outside of Pittsburgh, which is just a little ways out of Raleigh, North Carolina. It's a very rural setting, very much tucked back into the country here. We've got a great wooded areas that these guys can live in. We own 55 acres. Uh, we only actively use about 32 of those, and so we do have some room for growth. But it is very rustic. When Dr. Blyman began this, it was not to be open to the public, and so it is kind of rustic, and, and uh, you're on gravel roads and walking through paths to go see these guys uh, when you come out to visit us. You mentioned some of the animals that are found at the sanctuary. I wonder how many you have today and how most of these animals came to be with you. Were they surrendered by or confiscated from private owners or did they come to you after other facilities closed or did they come from zoos or circuses that no longer wish to or no longer have the ability to care for them? So right now we have 61 animals in our care, and many of these animals came from either facilities closing, which is surprisingly happens more often than you might believe, and so we've had some facilities that were very large. The largest was probably one that had over 500 animals that they were caring for, and they went under due to financial reasons, and so we helped take care of some of their cats. Some of these do come from individuals who are realizing that they've gotten themselves into a situation that they can't handle any longer, and so they have brought the animals to us. Other animals come to us because they've been confiscated. So an agency such as USDA has stepped in and said that these animals need to be placed or perhaps their local animal control has come in due to the animals not being cared for properly or the permits not being cared for properly. And so those animals come to us. And then sometimes we have strange circumstances like we had this past weekend where we had a kinkajou, which is a little South American animal, wander up in the backyard of somebody's house. And so the animal control of that area called us and asked us if we could step in. So this little kinkajou, who I'm sure is somebody's pet that either got loose or was set loose, you know, was wandering out in Holly Springs. Can you describe the kinkajou? Tell us more about the kinkajou. Yeah, kinkajous are kind of a strange little creature. They look kind of like a little tan monkey. So they only weigh about eight pounds. They do have claws on all of their paws, and their tail is prehensile, so they can use their tail kind of as a fifth hand when they're walking through trees and such. But they're a little tan, but they're not related to monkeys at all, and that's where it gets kind of confusing because people look at them and definitely come up with, you know, just a, a tiny little monkey. But they're actually part of the family carnivorous, so they're not related to them at all. On my recent visit, I was introduced to Wednesday, the kinkajou, and I was yeah. very saddened to hear from one of your volunteer guides, from Mark, 
that she had been kept as a pet and had been declawed, a process that necessitated the amputation of her fingers at the last joint. I just thought that was so sad. And in the in the latter part of the program, I'm really hoping that you will share some of the stories of the animals and uh, how they did come into your care uh, more specifically than, than we've just discussed just now. But, but I, I wonder if we might really begin to get into all of this with a focus on the tiger. And I'm, I'm wondering if you can kind of introduce us to the tiger. And I have a whole cluster, a whole list of questions that's related to this. And maybe I can toss out some of them and we'll see where we go from there. But, but I wonder, like what that. are tigers? What do they typically weigh? What's their average height? Are they solitary animals? Do they mate for life? Do they cluster together in prides like lions? So tigers are solitary animals. In the wild, the only time they would come together is for mating, in which time they would come together with another tiger to be able to have babies. And their babies would stay with them for upwards of about two years. And then, though, the cubs have to go and find their own way. Tigers will, on average, a female can weigh anywhere from 250 to 450 pounds or so. Male tigers normally weigh about 300 pounds to upwards of 700 pounds. So the males, in particular, can get very, very large. With humans, they do interact a lot with humans, more so than, say, their lion counterparts. Lions tend to be a little more standoffish with people, but tigers definitely do interact more. They love to chuffle, which is this really funny noise that they make in order to greet one another, and thankfully to greet humans as well. It's kind of like mixing a motorboat noise, a little brrrr, and rolling your R's in Spanish class. And so when they come up to greet and they're, they're happy, they go brrrr, brrrr. And that's how they greet one another. And in fact, we'll greet humans if you come out to visit them. And I had an opportunity to chuffle with the tigers and <laughs> enjoyed that very much. Something <laughs> that I heard from one of the volunteers there is that all striped and spotted cats have white stripes on the back of their ears that are used by them to signal safety or danger. Can you speak about that? Yeah. So tigers in particular, it's certainly one of the cats that have them. They have uh, these little white spots that are on the backs of their ears. And what we think they use them for mainly is for a mama tiger to be able to tell her cubs if they're in danger. So imagine trying to walk through a really dense vegetation and you've got two little ones following behind you and a predator comes up. And everybody thinks tigers, top of the food chain, there's no way they're going to be scared of anything. But cubs are very vulnerable. When a cub is born, they only weigh about two and a half pounds. So they're tiny when they're born. So they have a lot of growing up to do. And when the mom's walking along, if she finds that predator, what she'll do is she'll tuck her ears down so those white spots disappear. And the cubs know that that's their cue to sit down and be really quiet until the mom comes back and gets them. And the white is just one of those things that stands out. It's remarkable. Everybody, everybody says, oh, I, I can't understand how tigers hide when you know, they're, they're so colorful, that orange color. But you'd be surprising at how well that orange and black really fades into things. And so that white spot on their backs of their ears really stands out um, and is able to cue those cubs into what's going on. I was fascinated by this word that I heard from one of your volunteers about the, about the stripe or the spot on the back of the ear. And I wonder, are there other physical characteristics or behaviors that are particular to tigers? So tigers are actually one of the few cats that really enjoy water which is probably something that's very distinctive for them. They will swim. They will hunt in the water if the chance comes upon them, as opposed to most other cats that will do everything in their powers to avoid water. And so the tigers have actually developed great fur that allows them to get wet but then dry very quickly. 
and then even the way that their skin kind of comes down to a V underneath them, it allows that water to wick off really quickly. So it's probably one of the most distinctive things about tigers is their love of water. Is that avoidance of water found in the rest of the big cats as well as the little cats that we have in our homes? It's true. For the most part, now you will every once in a while get your strange little domestic cat that has a fondness for water. But most of them really do try and avoid water so far as getting in and swimming with it. And even drinking it, which is actually one of the things that's kind of remarkable about cats, is they don't drink much water even. They get most of their water from the food that they eat. Well, now what do tigers eat? Tigers will eat anything that is large enough for them to catch and make a meal out of. So these guys will hunt for any type of hoofstock that is big enough. They also really enjoy wild boar. What they don't hunt for are smaller things. So we've had people remark, especially out here at Carolina Tiger, that they've seen bunny rabbits hopping in and out of a tiger enclosure, and they're astounded that the tigers don't pay attention to them at all. But the thing to think about is that when you weigh 400 pounds, to go after anything to hunt it is going to cost you energy. And so they don't want to waste that energy on anything that's too small. So they like to, they especially like to hunt for hoofstock and, like I said, wild boar. So what do you feed them there at Carolina Tiger? At Carolina Tiger, we like to feed them a whole carcass diet. So these guys get whole chickens. And then we also feed out things like venison that gets donated to us, beef, goats, lots of different types of animals that get donated for different reasons. They will eat things like rabbits, but they don't tend to hunt for it. And so we have certainly fed out lots of whole carcasses. The whole carcass we find to be particularly healthy for these guys. We have 17-year-old tigers out here that have teeth that look pristine. And it's because of that whole carcass diet. To what areas of the world are they native? And how many of them are left in the wild? And and what is happening to their habitats, their natural habitats? So you're going to find tigers mainly in Asia. And unfortunately, there's only about 3,200 tigers left in the wild. Their populations are diminishing very quickly due to deforestation and poaching. But the strange part is that you can find over 5,000 of them in Texas. They are very popular to have as pets and to have in, in other types of animal collections. But the vast majority of them you're, you're going to find in captivity now. Their wild populations are diminishing quickly. Well, how long will they typically live in the wild? And how does that change once you bring them into captivity? So in the wild, a tiger will live somewhere between 10 and 12 years, which gives them multiple years to have multiple cubs. The problems that they face in the wild really have to do more with their lack of space to be able to set up their home territories. In captivity, these guys can live anywhere from 16 to 18 years fairly easily. And a lot of that just has to do with the fact that we've taken away all of those pressures. These tigers in captivity don't have to hunt for their food. They don't have to worry if they get sick. It's something that we can fix, that we will give them antibiotics to fix an infection. If they were to injure a leg, here in captivity, we can take care of that, or at the very least, we can make sure they're still being fed. Whereas in the wild, if any of those things were to happen, they just wouldn't be able to hunt for themselves, and they wouldn't be able to survive. You mentioned the care that they receive at Carolina Tiger. What do you have in the way of staff, and do you have veterinarians on staff? Yep, so we have uh, multiple staff members. Our animal care staff has my position as the curator, and then I have three keepers that care for the cats on a daily basis. We then also have two veterinarians that work part-time that are out here once a week to come and check on all of our guys and keep everybody happy and healthy. And then we have a support staff that is incredible, and that can be our construction staff, fundraising, our executive director. We have a myriad of people that help keep the, uh, the money flowing in to be able to help continue to care for these guys. 
And you also have a, a number of volunteers. I was uh, so impressed to come across just marvelous people who had devoted years and years and years to the work of Carolina Tiger. I don't know if you want to say just a little bit about that, and then perhaps we might take a break. Absolutely, yes. We do have an incredible volunteer staff. We have about 153 active volunteers, and that means that these are volunteers that are here once a week or twice a month, depending on what type of volunteer position that they're fulfilling. And they are doing everything from guiding tours to helping with animal care or construction, fundraising, kind of you name it, they come out here and help. They do incredible, incredible work out at Carolina Tiger Rescue. Well, let's indeed take a break. And when we come back, we'll turn our focus onto the exotic pet trade and to an examination of the laws that are and are not on the books in the United States regarding that trade. We'll hear stories from Catherine of how some of the animals came to live at the sanctuary, and we'll consider what is being done and what can be done to preserve the wildcats and their habitats. So please sit, stay. We'll be right back after this pause. Sit, stay. We'll be right back after a short pause. Petco, where the pets go. Pet Life Radio has tail wagging, fur flying, fabulous deals for our listeners from Petco. Get $6 off your order of $60 or more and up to 40% off the entire Petco site. That's right. But that's not all. Because you're a Pet Life Radio listener, you'll also get free shipping on your order of $49 or more. $6 off, up to 40% off, and free shipping from Pet Life Radio and Petco. To get these awesome deals, go to PetcoDeals.com. That's PetcoDeals.com. Petco, where the pets go. Hi, this is Tim Link, animal communicator and pet expert and host of Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. Have you ever wanted to know what your pet is really thinking? Do you want to find out if they truly understand what you're trying to tell them? Ever wish you could build a better understanding and closer relationship with your pet? Well, now you can. Learning to communicate with animals is a four-part on-demand workshop. In the workshop, you'll learn the essential techniques that are necessary to communicate with animals, including what is animal communication, breathing correctly to achieve the perfect state to communicate with your animals at a deeper level, using guided meditation exercises and method to communicate with animals, and how to send and receive information from your animals. So if you're wanting to learn how to communicate and connect with your animals at a deeper level, visit PetLifeRadio.com forward slash workshop and purchase and download Learning to Communicate with Animals. You'll be glad you did. Hi, I'm Dr. Jeff Werber from Ask the Vets with Dr. Jeff here on Pet Life Radio. We want to hear from you. Listen in. We're on every Thursday, 1 o'clock Pacific Time, 4 o'clock Eastern Time here on PetLifeRadio.com. We are one of the only live shows on Pet Life Radio, and I'm here to answer your questions. You can call in at 877-385-8882, or you can drop me an email to drjeff at PetLifeRadio.com, and hopefully we'll see you here on Thursdays. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. We're back, and you're listening to On the Road with Mac and Molly on the Pet Life Radio Network. 
I'm your host, Donna Haleson, and with us in this episode is Catherine Burtock, Curator of Animals at the Carolina Tiger Rescue. She's speaking to us from her office in Pittsburgh, North Carolina. Well, Catherine, I'm wondering if we might turn our attention to the exotic pet trade. I've read that the practice of importing and exporting wild animals as pets is a $15 billion industry, trailing only drugs and weapons as the biggest moneymaker on the black market. What species of animals are most regularly traded, and are the animals traded more usually bred in captivity, or are they being plucked directly from their native habitats? So some of that's going to depend on the species of animals that you're speaking of. Lots of reptiles and birds are taken directly from their native habitats. Those are the animals that you're going to hear about being smuggled in, stashed in somebody's coat pockets or in their luggage. And basically, they make their living by trying to get as many animals in, knowing that they're going to have animals die while they're being transported. A lot of the bigger animals, when you're dealing with tigers and lions, leopards and such, are animals that are most often bred in captivity and are then being sold as pets. But certainly your smaller animals, like I said, the reptiles, the birds, even some of your monkeys, things along that line have just been plucked directly out of their their native habitats. Well, to bring some of this home, why don't we focus on tigers? How many tigers are currently estimated, again, to be in captivity in the United States? You mentioned Texas, but how many in the United States and, and just how easy is it to acquire a tiger? Unfortunately, the number of tigers in captivity is a very broad guess. There are people that estimate it to be somewhere between seven and 10,000 tigers in captivity, with Texas obviously having a very, very, very large population. But there are no reasons to regulate, so nobody really knows exactly how many of those cats are living in, in your backyard. And the ease of getting them depends on where you are. There are people that breed them for this very purpose. And so it takes a little bit of internet searching to find the right place in the right time and you can get a tiger cub, you know, for as little as $2,000. You had mentioned to me the tigers are the most often traded of the big cats. Why is that? I think tigers are traded as pets most often because of their personalities. As opposed to some of the other big cats, tigers do respond a lot to humans. They come up, they chuckle, they rub, they kind of view us as equals. You've seen all the magic shows where they have tigers trained to jump through flaming hoops and and whatnot. And that's because the tigers really do look at us as equals. They don't realize that, you know, if they chose to, that they could do a lot of damage to us very quickly. But because we are big, because we look at them, you know, in their eyes, they don't think of us as prey species. So it's really that they can have an incredible interaction with us. And don't get me wrong, I work with these animals every day, and I find them fascinating and awe-inspiring on a daily basis. So I can understand the, the drive to want to have them as a pet. It's just the repercussions of that that then can get a little more complicated. You had mentioned to me, and, and I should say that we have had conversations prior to our time on the radio today. You had mentioned to me that oftentimes with the tigers, they will start off as attractions, as babies, as attractions. And can you talk about that a little bit and what happens to those babies? So this is a really sad component of the whole tiger pet trade. Many times places will breed tigers so that they can have cubs, and then they take those cubs and they go do photo opportunities. And this is where, you know, you're sitting up at a beach community, 
and you can come and get your photo taken with your baby tiger for $25. And they shuffle you in, you stick a bottle in a cub's mouth, they take the picture, and you're moving on. Now, the problem with this is, is that these cubs can only be used for a couple of months. And then when they get too big, when they're over six months of age, they have to be shipped out somewhere. Now, a lot of these places will say, oh, we take them back to this great, lovely facility where they live their lives out. But unfortunately, that's not necessarily the case. These animals are no longer money makers, and so many of them will get sold off into the pet trade. So now you can own your very own six-month-old tiger. And then others, it's widely believed, are then euthanized because they're just no longer going to make that person any money. And then do some of these also end up in hunting preserves in this country? Absolutely. There are definitely places that do what are considered canned hunts, and that is where you take an animal and you have them in some very small area, like a small enclosure, somehow so they cannot get away from hunters, so that we can go in as the mighty hunters that we are, and we can shoot this incredible creature and say, oh, look, I shot a tiger, and then they get it you know, stuffed and mounted in their living room, which is sad because this is not what these tigers have signed up for. And it's not their fault that they're in captivity. You know, these are choices that we have made as humans that the tigers then have to suffer for. Right, for our own entertainment. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, this, the entertainment business is striking in lots of ways with these tigers. You know, the way that they are used for entertainment, the way you use them in magic shows and in circuses, that they then live the rest of their lives in very small enclosures you know, forced to do whatever it is the humans want. And if they're no longer willing, they euthanize them. What's the point of having a tiger that is no longer going to perform? And that's all, like you said, just for entertainment. The tigers are getting nothing out of this. Do you have an, an opinion on what happened with the Siegfried and Roy, the show that they produced? Or do you believe the tiger attacked? So I do think the tiger attacked. I know some of the reports were that this tiger was trying to drag him off stage to protect him. I don't think that's at all what happened. Tigers are predators. They are predators right down to their very bones. I'm sure that something happened. He either tripped or had a small stroke, you know, somehow showed weakness, and that tiger reacted. He just reacted like any predator would if a prey item was walking past him and tripped. If I walk through the compound with a limp, the tigers pay attention. They don't come up and shuffle and greet me. They watch me walking with that limp thinking, huh. She looks weak today. Now, they don't do anything because they're behind a fence. But in that circumstance, the tiger was right there. And so he grabbed a hold of his arm. And then he hit him in the nose with the microphone to get him to release, which is what they're trained to do. And the tiger took offense to that. And so he reached up and grabbed at his neck. And now this is where people say, oh, but if he had wanted to kill him, the tiger would have just killed him. But these are tigers that have never killed anything in their lives. They don't know how, they understand the concept of it, but they don't know how to do it. They haven't practiced, which is what they would be doing with their mama tiger would be practicing. She would be bringing them things and saying, here, figure out how to do this. Well, that tiger had never done this in its life. And so he was trying to drag him away to kill him. But it's not the tiger's fault. The tiger is simply reacting like a tiger reacts. Are there statistics on injuries and deaths from tiger attacks of their owners, quote unquote? There's very little information out there because I'm sure you can imagine that if you owned a tiger in your backyard and something happens, you don't necessarily want to bring attention to it. Now, there have obviously been lots of cases 
And what's most unfortunate is that most of these cases did not involve the owner. They actually involved somebody else. So it's a neighbor's child or their grandchild or somebody else who is not normally working with those animals that suffer the consequences. And it can be quick and it can be due to anything. Like I said, tripping or startling the tiger. We have had them here in North Carolina where a gentleman owned a tiger in his backyard and his grandson came up and the story is that he tapped the tiger on the back end and the tiger just turned around and reacted. And unfortunately, he was blinded in one eye and I think he lost most of his vision in his other eye just from a bite and that's all it took. One of the things that I found most astonishing in researching some of this is how little is on the books in this country in the way of laws to just regulating the keeping of wild animals as pets. It seems clear to me that neighbors of those who, who do have perhaps a, you could have a tiger, you could have a tiger, a venomous snake, a lion living next door, and you might have absolutely no idea that that animal was there until it got loose and ended up in your backyard. Can you speak a little bit about the laws that are or are not on the books? Maybe some recommendations of yours might be in the mix of all of this in this country. And how, in your estimation, is public health and safety threatened by the exotic pet trade? So the federal laws that involve owning of tigers involves importation and exportation of tigers. So it's illegal in the United States to import tigers from other countries. Now, that being said, there's obviously plenty of cats that are already in the United States that are breeding. So after that, the only other federal law prevents the transportation of big cats uh, across state lines with the exception of being a circus or a zoo or a sanctuary who are moving animals from one facility to another. But with that being said, that law has very little teeth. I have gone to transport tigers and the first time after this law had been passed, I called the number and said, I need to transport this tiger from this state from this state. And she said, okay. And I said, well, do I need to give you anything? She's like, well, do you have your 501c3? And I said, yes, ma'am, we're tax exempt. She's like, okay. That's all you need. And that was it. And that was, <laughs> that was it. it. And so I was mm. like, okay, so clearly this law has no teeth. Anybody and anybody can pass a tiger across state lines. Even if you're pulled over, the likelihood of anything happening is slim to none. So then you go down to a state level. Now, there are many states in the United States that do outlaw exotic animals. There are others that have high regulations that regulate the ownership of those cats in, in captivity. And then you have other states like North Carolina that has no laws whatsoever regulating exotic animal ownership. So North Carolina is one of the last few that have no laws on the books at all. So North Carolina, unless your city or your county has a different law in place, you can own your tiger or your bear in your backyard without anybody knowing any different. It's just astonishing. It is. It is astonishing. Mm. And the problem is when things go awry. If you could tell me that nobody other than the owner would ever be at risk, I would say, okay, mm -hmm. well, then an owner is taking on a responsibility, and if they get hurt, well, it was a decision that they made. But that's not the case. You know, that tiger is a risk to other animals. We do not take our job here at Carolina Tiger Rescue lightly. Uh, we are a no-touch facility. We don't put our hands in the cages with these animals. We do not treat them as pets. They are dangerous just because of what they are. And it has nothing to do with them being mean or people will say, oh, but they love me. It has nothing to do with love or hate. It's that these are predators, and that these are large predators that are not native to here. 
and that really have no business being in captivity. They really belong in the wild. One question I would have at meeting to um, close out our time pretty soon, and there's so much more <laughs> that I really would like to address, but I wonder if you could speak a bit about what happens to a habitat when you remove the top of the food chain. Oh, so these are classic issues. This is the balance of an ecosystem, and ecosystems are balanced if left to their own devices. Every ecosystem has its chain of events that occur that keep it healthy. And so things happen that you don't even necessarily think of. So we say, okay, there's no longer a top predator. We've taken tigers out of their habitat. So now those animals that the tigers were eating and keeping in check can now grow and have huge populations. And people say, well, it's okay. Lots of deer are fine. Why is that a problem? Okay, well, but those deer are then going to be eating things in that ecosystem at a higher rate than they used to be. So we've seen this with deforestation issues, that these deer then, you have huge populations that are coming in and eating up all the new trees. So before they can grow up and do what they're supposed to do, those trees are being eaten and are no longer growing as fast. And so it can go way far out that it's not just the fact that you're going to have more deer, but it's the fact that you're going to have more deer, which is going to mean that you're going to have less tree growth. And it trickles down to every single species that is in that ecosystem, which is one of the reasons why we are big proponents of saving tigers' population. If you save enough space in order for tigers to do well, you are saving that space for all of the species that live in that ecosystem. And you can make a huge impact. We do need to close out our time, and I'd really like to do that by hearing the story of one of your newest residents there, and uh, this is Aria. I'm wondering if you might share with us a bit about how she came to make her home with you. Absolutely. So Aria is a lovely, lovely, lovely 10-year-old tiger that has just recently come to live at Carolina Tiger Rescue. We got word of her situation through the local animal control where they had gotten word that she was not doing well, physically not doing well, that she was very ill and that she had lost a tremendous amount of weight. Talking to the animal control officer, she said, I think she you know, only weighs a couple hundred pounds. She's very emaciated. And sometimes I take it with a little bit of a grain of salt because I never am really sure about how well people can look at a tiger and know how well they're doing. But I said, you know, not a problem. We can come down and see if we can help. We got a call the next day saying that she was not getting up and that she was vomiting, which was a little scary. Wasn't sure if she was going to make it through this. But a veterinarian was able to get out and run some blood work on her and found that her blood work actually looked pretty good. So we came down the following day to get her. And when we got there, I was surprised at how poor of a condition she was in. I have never seen a tiger that underweight. All of her ribs were exposed. All of her her leg bones were exposed. And these are all things that should be really well covered with good muscle and fat. She was definitely the most emaciated cat I have ever seen. We were able to get her down, get her loaded up, and on her way back to North Carolina. Once we got her here, we ran some more blood work trying to figure out what had caused her to lose all of this weight. Her coat was completely disheveled. She was a mess. We ran some more blood work, found out that she has EPI, which is a pancreatic insufficiency disease that causes her pancreas not to produce enough enzymes to break down her food. So basically, she was starving no matter how much she was actually eating. Her body just could not break down that food in order to survive. And so we treated her for some other issues that she had going on, a little salmonella infection, and obviously just her intestines being really, really upset, and then has started her on beef pancreas 
we feed her beef pancreas and that helps to digest the food that she is eating. And I will tell you within two weeks, she was putting weight back on beautifully. She looked fantastic. And then it's taken another couple of months to get her coat back under control. She's finally losing all of that rough coat and is now looking like a fantastic, fantastic 10-year-old tiger. Now, she came to you from a family that loved her and meant her well, but she became too much for them to handle, yes? Absolutely. And this is one of the things people say, oh, you know, people who own tigers, they clearly don't love these animals. And I disagree with that. I think sometimes they do really love the animals. I mean, this had been a pet for them for 10 years. They had given her, you know, everything that they could. But in the end, when she became ill, they couldn't find a veterinarian to take care of her. And what I tell people is, When you own an animal, it is your responsibility to care for them. So though they weren't neglecting her as in they weren't feeding her, the neglect was in not being able to get her the proper veterinary care to allow her to heal and and become the tiger that she is today. And so that's that's an unfortunate side effect. Right. You had said that there aren't that many veterinarians who are willing to come out and knock down a big cat to uh, administer the medical care that's required. Oh, no, not at all. I mean, not many people know how to do it. And who wants to take on the responsibility of not only knocking down a cat, but knocking down a sick cat? So this is not even a healthy cat that you're trying to get down and do a a medical procedure on. This is a very, very debilitated cat who we were astonished that she did as well with the anesthesia as she did. And we do this every day. You know, this is not unusual for us. But we were concerned getting her under anesthesia, whether or not she would come back up again. So I can only imagine being a veterinarian in a position where this is not what you do for a living and, you know, here you go, let's try and test it out on a very sick cat. And not to mention the dangers of it. If that cat decides to come up or you go in with them too quickly and they're not all the way under anesthesia, now somebody gets hurt. I understand the hesitation, but this is why we do what we do. I don't know if you will just end up restating your vision and and mission, but I wonder if you've just got sort of a, I don't know, a closing statement on what what your hopes would be for the tiger. So I would say to sum it up really easy for me is to respect these animals. Um, And respecting them may mean not having them as a pet. It means allowing them to live in the wild where they're supposed to be living. It means not getting your photo taken with that cub who is destined now for a life in captivity so that you could have a photo with this really cute thing. If we respect them and respect them more than our pride, then the tigers will do very well. It's when we don't respect them for what they are, which are incredible wild animals, that they get into trouble and then by default we get into trouble as well. Well, folks can learn a great deal more about the tigers and the other animals that are in your care via private and group tours, via your website. I know you also have safari camps for kids, and there are opportunities as well for people to volunteer. I wonder if you'd like to just summarize uh, some of the other ways that folks can aid you in your efforts. So for our purpose, First of all, education. Educate yourself about what the issues are facing these animals in captivity in the wild. And we are here to be a fantastic resource, like I said, from our tours and the summer camps and our website. But you can educate yourself in other ways. And then if you're looking to help these animals that are very unfortunately in captivity for the rest of their lives, being able to come out and volunteer, donating your time or donating money to help care for these guys is always greatly appreciated.
Thank you, Catherine, so much for being with us today. And thank you, thank you, thank you for all of your efforts toward improving the lot of tigers and other wild animals. I am honored to know you and just so grateful that we have been able to connect. If you would like to learn more, listeners, about the Carolina Tiger Rescue, please do visit their website or take some time to visit the sanctuary, meet the animals in person, or in other ways support the effort to improve the lot of tigers in the world. Photos of Aria and the Carolina Tiger Rescue are found on the Mac and Molly blog that accompanies this program. As always, I thank you so much for listening. And as always, I invite you to come along next time as we head off on the road with Mac and Molly. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.